Matthew chapter 14, verse, uh, chapter 14, verse 13 says this, Now when Jesus heard this, he withdrew from there in a boat to a desolate place by himself. But when the crowds heard it, they followed him on foot from the towns. When he went ashore, he saw a great crowd, and he had compassion on them and healed their sick. Now when it was evening, the disciples came to him and said, This is a desolate place, and the day is now over. Send the crowds away to go into the villages and buy food for themselves. But Jesus said, they need not go away. You give them something to eat. They said to him, we only have five loaves here and two fish. And he said, bring them here to me. Then he ordered the crowds to sit down in the grass, and taking the five loaves and the two fish, he looked up to heaven and said a blessing. Then he broke the loaves and gave them to the disciples. The disciples gave them to the crowds. And they all ate and were satisfied. They took up 12 baskets full of the broken pieces left over. And those who were eight were about 5,000 men besides women and children. So my son Paul is uh, usually a pretty good sleeper. Uh, but one night a few weeks ago, not so much. So it was, I think it was the last week of Awana, I Hope Kids Club. We had just gotten home from, from there. And uh, I love serving in Awana, but um, I'm not really really great with kids, and so it kind of drains me, so I get home, and I'm just exhausted, and I'm like, you know, just ready to put him to bed, and maybe just watch a little bit of TV, and relax, unwind, go to bed, and so we go, and we give him his bath, we, we go through the whole nighttime ritual, we read him his books, and he's all ready for bed, put him to bed, and then, you know, we go downstairs, and uh, we just are just sitting, just relaxing, and then about 15 minutes later, I hear, Daddy, Daddy, I need you. So I go up there. I can't sleep. I can't sleep. I'm like, oh, great. For whatever reason, I was in a very good mood, I guess. And I, so I'm like, you want to come downstairs for a few minutes? And of course, he's like, yeah, I'll come down. So he comes down, and he, he laid on the couch with me for like 10 or 15 minutes. Then I take him back up to bed. I'm like, all right, Polly, it's time to go to bed. You know, we're done. With, it's time to go to bed. So then I go back down, and uh, Stephanie and I are just watching TV, hanging out. About 15, 20 minutes go by, and I'm like, I'm, I'm tired. I'm going to go to bed. So I go to bed. Stephanie's still out there. I'm just about to get into bed, and I hear footsteps. And I'm like, what? what's happening? So I go to grab the baby monitor and about to say, Polly, go back to bed. But before I even can do that, he's already downstairs. And so I come out, and he's just sitting down, downstairs looking at me. I'm just exhausted. I'm like, okay, good night, everyone. I'm going to bed. So I go back to bed, and I get in bed. I'm just getting ready to fall asleep. I hear footsteps. Paulie's coming to me. Hey, Daddy, I got a prize for you. I got some elephants, some animals for you. I said, Paulie, that's, that's great, but I'm, I'm trying to sleep here. So then he goes back to the living room. I think, oh, finally, I'm going to go to sleep. Then I hear footsteps again, and he comes back, and he's trying to climb into the bed. I'm like, Paul, what are you doing? And I'm getting, I'm, I'm, at this point, I'm just getting really frustrated. I, I don't want to be interrupted. I just want to go to sleep. And he's about to climb up into, into our bed, and I'm like, Paulie, you got to go to bed. Like, it, it's, it, you know, I've shown you a lot of grace. It's time to go to bed. And he climbs up in bed. I'm like, what are you doing, Paulie? Why do you want to sleep here? You just got to go to bed. And then he says something to me with this really sweet, soft voice. 
He says, I want to sleep here because I love you. And I was like, okay, get in here. <laughs> I mean, I didn't want to be interrupted. All I wanted to do was fall asleep. But he knew those words that he would say that would melt my heart to change me. You know, you think about this passage and, you know, Jesus has just heard from John the Baptist, or from disciples of John the Baptist, that John the Baptist has been put to death. Um, it says in the text that he withdrew to a desolate place, kind of a desert wilderness area. Um, gets into boat and he's headed there and the reason he's headed there is because he wants to be alone. Uh, part of the reason was he was probably, you know, kind of fleeing Herod, just kind of going under the radar. It wasn't his time to, to die yet and so he's kind of fleeing there. But also, um, he probably just wants some rest and relaxation, wants some time with his disciples. He's been doing a lot of ministry, wants some time to recharge, reconnect uh, with his heavenly father. And so he goes on the boat and goes to this desert place, and then 5,000 of his friends show up. Not exactly the, the desolate place he was looking for, not exactly the retreat he was looking for, but somehow he's okay with this interruption. And I think that the reason he's okay with it is because of the faith that this crowd demonstrates. And just like my heart moved to my son because of the words he said, I think God's heart moves towards us when we exhibit faith. Faith moves the heart of God towards us. You think about kind of the faith involved here. Um, you think about this crowd, and there had to be informants that told them where Jesus was going. I mean, there's, there's probably people that are like looking like, I, I think he's headed this way. I think he's headed this way. You know, and think about the logistics and the chain of command of, I mean, this great number of people that one person had to tell the next person that tells the next person, he's headed this way, he's headed this way. And they travel all, all the way around the lake. Uh, some scholars believe that they may have taken a fort or somehow gotten over the Jordan River to get there. And so they're determined, and they're determined to go to this desolate place, this wilderness, not a comfortable place to be, uh, not maybe, maybe really hot at this point, but certainly uncomfortable. Uh, we can see their determination by the fact that they go there and they're not prepared. They don't have food to eat for the journey. They're just going. As Jesus is headed over here, so they just run to wherever he's headed, and, and they're willing to do anything just to hear from him. And so we see that God, Jesus' heart is moved towards him. It says in the text that he had compassion on them, and he healed uh, those who were sick. And we see throughout the scriptures that he responds graciously and positively to bold, audacious faith. And, and we see in this passage... Um, you know, something that's kind of unique in the scriptures and in the, in the gospels especially, we see a number of times where the crowd kind of turns away from Jesus. But this is one example, I think, where the crowd is running in the right direction, showing audacious faith. Uh, we saw this throughout the scriptures with individuals, but now we see it kind of a, with the crowd in general. Remember the story of the centurion who was believed that Jesus only needed to say the word and his servant would be healed. I remember the, the woman who had a discharge of blood who just believed that she, she just had to touch the hem of Jesus' garment and she would be healed. Um, Matthew himself, who left his tax collector booth behind, got up, left everything to follow Jesus. Uh, two blind men who followed Jesus crying out, have mercy on us, son of David. Hebrews eleven six 6 says, And without faith it's impossible to please him, for whoever would draw near to God must believe that he exists and that he rewards those who seek him. 
Now, sometimes we think about faith, and maybe we ask ourselves, oh, what's the big deal about faith? Why does God value our faith so much? Sometimes when we think about faith, we think of it as just kind of like believing that God exists. And that's part of it, but it's a lot more than that. But why does God value faith so much? I think the reason he values faith is because when we exhibit faith or we don't exhibit faith, it tells a lot about what we think about God. It tells a lot about what we think about his character. So occasionally I'll drive my wife, uh, Stephanie, to work. She works downtown Buffalo. And um, imagine that, say, I drove her downtown, dropped her off at work, and right before I'm about to drop her off from work, imagine she says to me, so you're going to pick me up, right? Like, you're sure you're going to pick me up? I say, of course, I'm going to pick you up. And then imagine 10 minutes later, she texts me and say, you're still going to pick me up, right? You're still going to pick me up? Like, yeah, I'm going to pick you up. Then imagine she goes and talking to her coworkers, and she says, I'm really worried. I don't think Matthew's going to pick me up today. Imagine that after that, she goes and looks at the bus schedule and sees how much it would cost to, to, to take a bus to get home or to Uber home, just in case I don't show up to pick her up. Imagine then in the afternoon... It starts raining, and then she calls me up and says, I just saw it was raining out. Do you think you're going to, are you still going to come pick me up? Then imagine it's, she gets out at five. Imagine it's like five minutes after five, and she calls me up and says, I knew you weren't going to pick me up. I knew the whole time you weren't going to pick me up, to which I respond, I'm right around the corner. I'm almost there. I mean, if that was the case, what would that say about her, what she thought about me? Of course, she didn't trust me, but she also didn't think I was trustworthy. She didn't think I cared about her, didn't think I loved her. She thinks that I would just leave her downtown and leave her to fend for herself. Now, of course, in actuality, if I dropped her off at work, she wouldn't ask me if I was going to pick her up at all because she knows I'm going to pick her up. And if it was five minutes after five, she would think, well, he's just running a couple minutes late. If it was ten minutes after, well, there must have been a lot of traffic. If it's an hour after, he must be dead because <laughs> she knows that I'm going to pick her up. She trusts that I'm going to pick her up because she knows me. And if we exhibit faith in God, it means that we believe that God is trustworthy. If we don't exhibit faith in God, it means that we don't think he's trustworthy. We don't think he really cares about us. We don't think that he really loves us. And so we see that God moves towards us when we exhibit faith. And we want God to move in our lives. If we want him his blessing to be upon us. If we want him to use us in incredible ways, we need to be people of faith, people who trust in his character, people who step forward in obedience because faith moves the heart of God towards us. The second thing we learn in this passage is that God asks us to meet needs with what he has given us. He asks us to meet needs with what he has given us. So evening has come. There's 5,000 men there. Besides women and children, so at minimum 5,001 probably, probably a lot more. Uh, some scholars suggest that it could have been up to 20, 25,000. Who knows? We know there's at least 5,000, lots of people. And so they've come, it's, it's getting to be evening time, they're hungry, and the disciples come up with a solution, let's send them away. Now, it seems like it would make sense on the surface. If they're hungry, just send them away, get something to eat. Um, but in that day and age, of course, there wasn't fast food. They weren't in a ginormous city. There wasn't infrastructure to support this number of people eating at the same time. 
And so they would have to rely on the hospitality of the people in the surrounding areas. And for that many people, chances are they're not going to find food. I mean, it's unlikely that they could find food for that many people at the same time uh, anywhere in that area. So really, it's not really a solution. It's basically, hey, tell them to go away. Tell them they're on their own. Like, we got to figure out what we're doing for dinner, and they got to go take care of themselves. It's not really a solution. And so Jesus isn't having any of that. He says, like, we don't have to send them away. You give them something to eat. Now, they're probably thinking, yeah, right. I mean, this is crazy. Like, and, and they've been with Jesus for some time now. So they're thinking, like, what is Jesus talking about? What is he going to do now? And so he says, you give them something to eat. I mean, it was, from a human standpoint, it was impossible not only did they not have enough money to buy the food that they would need, but again, the food isn't available, most likely. Like, even if they had all the money in the world, you know, they can't go to Walmart or Costco and just buy everything that they have. It's an impossible solution. That's what Jesus calls them to do. And they, they come forward and they say, we have five loaves and two fish. From John, we learn that this, there's a small boy who brings these forward. And Jesus says, bring them to me. Now, this was an act of faith as well, the fact that they bring these to Jesus, because, of course, there's 12 of them and, and Jesus. And so this wouldn't have been enough for a gourmet meal for them, but it would have been something. Five loaves and a couple of fish, uh, they would have a little snack, a little sustenance to sustain them. Um, and yet Jesus calls them to bring it to him. Now, you think about it, and Jesus, you know, is the Son of God. He's, he's God with skin on. And so he could have just snapped his fingers and the bread could have just appeared before them. But he doesn't do that. He says, give me what you have. Bring to me what you have. And we see throughout the scripture, that's what God does. He doesn't just snap his fingers and provide for us generally. He says, give me what you have. Just like, you know, think about Moses. And God could have just done these miracles through him. But what does he choose to do? He chooses to do it through his staff. Uh, think about David. David has a slingshot and a few stones. God chooses to bring down Goliath with those, that slingshot and a few stones. In our lives, we'll sometimes encounter great needs. And often the Spirit of God will ask us, just bring me what you got. Just bring me what you got. I, I, I know it's an impossible task. Just bring me what is in your hands. Bring me what I've given you, and that will be enough. Of course, the disciples could have thought to themselves, well, we don't have enough for ourselves. I mean, we should just keep our, this for ourselves. We should just sustain ourselves, send them away, let them go on their own. Sometimes we can do the same thing. Like, I, I don't have enough just to provide for my own family. I don't have enough to give. I don't have time. I don't have resources. And yet the call of Christ is not simply to receive, but also to give. The spiritual writer Watchman Nee once said this, the fellowship of the body is always two-way, receiving and giving. Wanting only to receive blessings is not fellowship. We may not be preachers, but when we come to worship, we nevertheless bring what we have. There must be help of the pulpit from the pew. Sitting and looking on will not do. We must give others to drink, not necessarily by speaking, but maybe by quiet prayer. Every member of the body has a ministry, and every member is called to function in the place appointed by the Lord. It makes no difference who does the work, if the glory is his. As believers in Christ, we all have something to contribute. 
And he's not calling us to, contrib- to give what somebody else gives. He's calling us to give what we have in our hands, to bring our loaves, our fish to him, to bring our skills, our talents, our resources to him and say, God, this is what I got. Use it for your glory. So God asks us to give him what we have to meet the needs of those around us. But then, of course, the question we have is, like, what, what good is it? You know, what good is five loaves and two fish with 5,000, 10,000, however many people there were? It's just a drop in the bucket for the need around him. But again, we see in this passage that God multiplies what we have. He takes what we have and he multiplies it. The disciples bring him five loaves, two fish. They end up with 12 basket poles left over. They could have kept a snack for themselves. They could have each had a, a bite of the bread, maybe a bite of the fish, had a little snack. But instead, they give to Jesus what they have, and they're all satisfied. They eat their inner full, and this whole crowd eats and is full, and there's 12 basketfuls left over. God takes what we have, and he multiplies it. Um, sometimes, you know, the phrase goes around, we can't outgive God. You know, and sometimes people kind of take it in the wrong way. It's like, you know, it's like God is an investment program that if I give $100 and I'm going to get $200 back and then maybe we're, you know, disappointed if we don't in that way. But the principle applies when we give to God what's in our hands, he's going to multiply it. I mean, sometimes it could mean that God shows that he's provider and, you know, maybe we give financially and he gives us more in return. Uh, But maybe it's that we give of our time and then he blesses us financially. Uh, Or maybe we walk forward in obedience and uh, obey him with things that he's talking to to us about in our hearts. And maybe he blesses us relationally. I I don't know what it looks like. It looks different. It's not kind of a predictable blessing. But when we give God what we have, it's in our hands, he's going to multiply it. He's going to do beyond what we could ever hope or imagine. God is the source of all that's good in our life. He's the fountain that never runs dry. Imagine a little child goes to a restaurant and imagine a little child has a little sippy cup. He's drinking some juice and drinks all the juice down. Then he says to his mother, Mama, I, I need some more juice. The mother calls to the waitress and says, Hey, could we get some more juice, please? And so the waitress comes and takes the sippy cup from the child and then the, tip, the child goes, no, 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 don't take it. Don't take my juice. Don't take my cup. To which the mother responds, if she doesn't take it, she can't fill it. She's taking the cup so that she could fill it up. And I think that God does the same thing. He takes what we have, not so that we would be empty, but so that he might fill us up. And so if we're going to be blessed by God. If we're going to be a blessing to those around us, we need to give him what we have so that he can bless us and he can multiply it. And notice what Jesus does. When the disciples bring the bread and uh, the fish to him, Look, notice what he does. He takes them, he blesses them, and he looks up to heaven. That was the posture of prayer, how they were often praying. But notice he's, he's not looking around. He's not looking, well, let's, let's see if we can find some bread somewhere else. Go to that village over there, see what you can come up with. Go to that village over there, see how many fish you can get. He's not looking around him, he's looking up to the source of all life. So we come to get to God, we give him what we have, and then we look up. That God, use this for your glory. 
We don't look around. We look up at his provision. And God fills us up. God is moved by our faith. He's moved by bold, audacious, dangerous faith. He's not moved by our desire to stay faith, or to stay safe. Matthew 25, 14 to 30 says this. Jesus says, For it will be like a man going on a journey who called his servants and entrusted to them his property. To one he gave five talents, to another two, to another one, to each according to his ability. Then he went away. He who had received the five talents went at once and traded with them, and he made five talents more. So also he who had dug two talents made two talents more. But he who had received the one talent went and dug in the ground and hid his master's money. Now after a long time, the master of those servants came and settled accounts with them. And he who had received the five talents came forward, bringing five talents more, saying, Master, you delivered to me five talents. Here I have made five talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. And he also, who had the two talents, came forward, saying, Master, you delivered to me two talents. Here I have made two talents more. His master said to him, Well done, good and faithful servant. You have been faithful over a little. I will set you over much. Enter into the joy of your master. He also, who had received the one talent, came forward, saying, Master, I knew you to be a hard man, reaping where you did not sow and gathering where you scattered no seed. So I was afraid, and I went and hid your talent in the ground. Here you have what is yours. But his master answered him, You wicked and slothful servant, you knew that I reap where I have not sown, gather where I have scattered no seed. Then you ought to have invested my money with the bankers, and at my coming I should have received what was mine with interest. So take the talent from him and give it to him who has the ten talents. For to everyone who has will more be given, and he will have an abundance. But from the one who has not, even what he has will be taken away. And cast the worthless servant into the outer darkness, in that place where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Why did the one servant bury his treasure? He had one treasure, one talent, and he buried it. He buried it because he didn't trust the master. He thought the master was a stern man. He thought the master takes what he doesn't sow. And when we don't trust the master, then we're not willing to risk. We're not willing to give what we have. Because we don't believe that he's looking out for us. God asks us to meet the needs around us with what we have. And when we give to him, when we give him what we have in our hands, he multiplies it. There's once a little girl by the name of Hattie Mae Wyatt. And uh, she, was, um, she lived near a church called Grace Baptist Church in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania. The church was a growing church. And they had just a little church building and uh, didn't have enough, people for, uh, enough room for people to come to, to Sunday school. She was really concerned about this, and so she talked to the pastor, Russell Conwell, um, and he told her that one day they'd have buildings that were big enough to allow everyone to come. She said, I hope you will. It's so crowded, I'm afraid to go there alone. Two years later, in 1886, she tragically passed away. After the funeral, Hattie's mother gave the minister a little bag they had found under the daughter's pillow containing 57 cents in change that she had saved up. Alongside it was a note in her handwriting to help build bigger so that more children could go to Sunday school. The minister changed all the money into pennies and offered each one for sale. He received 
The $250 was itself changed into pennies and sold by the newly formed Wyatt Mite Society. In this way, her 57 cents kept multiplying and multiplying. 26 years after that, in a talk entitled The History of the 57 Cents, the minister explained the results of her 57-cent donation. A church with a membership of over 5,600 people. A hospital where tens of thousands of people had been treated. 80,000 young people going through university. 2,000 people going out to preach the gospel. All this because Hattie Mae Wyatt invested 57 cents. Ladies and gentlemen, our church isn't the largest church, but our church can change the world if all of us are fully devoted to Christ. Many years ago in 1873 in Dublin, D.L. Moody was uh, praying with a number of people. One of them was named uh, Henry Varley, uh, who was an evangelist. And in the course of praying, uh, Henry Varley said a statement that you may have heard before. He said, the world has yet to see what God can do with and for and through and in a man who is fully and wholly consecrated to him. Farley actually didn't even remember saying those exact words, but they were words that stuck with D.L. Moody. And he resolved that he was going to be that man. D.L. Moody went on to do a number of things, lead thousands of people to the Lord, start a, a Bible college, and do a number of incredible things. But shortly before he died, a few years before he died, Moody said this about his death. He said, if it can be said faithfully over my grave, Moody has done what he could. That will be the most glorious epitaph. My prayer is that that would be said of us at I Hope Community Church as well. That we gave God what we had. That we did what we could. That we stepped forward in audacious, bold faith. That we saw the needs around us and we gave him what we had, what was in our hands. And that as we do so, we watch him multiply it. Sometimes in ways that we can see very clearly. Sometimes in ways that are more mysterious. But we give him all that we have. Offering him our hearts, offering him our life, offering our resources time. Let's pray. Dear Lord, we thank you for your grace. Lord, as we come today, it's just that the topic is just on my heart today. Your boundless, matchless love for us. That you choose to use us for your glory. That you don't need us. You don't need what's in our hands. You could do it all by yourself, but you choose to allow us to be a part of your plan. Lord, help us never to hold on to what we have, thinking that that will satisfy us, but that we would offer everything that we are, everything that we have to you and find that you do satisfy, that you can fill us up, that you are the bread of heaven, the bread of life, the water that satisfies our soul forever. Lord, we love you. We thank you for your grace. In Christ's name I pray, amen. As we close today, um, feel free to, to sit, to stand. Uh, also, Flora will be in the back praying. If there's anyone who would uh, just like someone to pray for them, feel free to head to the back, and Flora would love to pray for you.